Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Hey gang, welcome to Blockhead. Today we have a continuation of our discussion with Professor Charles Hatfield, great comic scholar from California State University at Northridge in Los Angeles and the author of the seminal work on Jack Kirby and Jack Kirby's art, Hand of Fire, the comic art of Jack Kirby, as well as the author of Alternative Comics and Emerging Literature. For those of you who are Kirby fanatics, this episode is the one. We get into all kinds of of minutiae regarding Jack Kirby and the work of Jack Kirby. So listen along, argue with us if you will, but I think you will enjoy it one way or the other if you are a Kirby fan. And even if you are not, we get into lots of stuff about cartooning in general. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. You can follow Charles at kirbystudies.org where you can follow his blog about all things Jack Kirby or you can follow him at kindercomics.org where he talks about a lot of different kinds of comics and children's literature so you can follow Charles there you can also follow him on Twitter at Charles Hatfield of course I've been keeping busy as usual working on my latest comic book project Green Screen which will be a Kickstarter coming up in August. More about that later on. Right now, let's get to the discussion about Jack Kirby and Jack Kirby's career in comics and Jack Kirby comic books with Charles Hatfield and myself in conversation. I agree with you. You know, there was that period in the 70s where, particularly the late 70s, where Kirby was maligned, you know, for the ruggedness and the expressive quality of his work. And we, when, when I go back and I look at 70s comics uh, and I think about as kids what we were responding to in, the, in that time, like there were certain figures who were um venerated over other figures you know and particularly the cart- the approach that we're talking about in Kirby's work this highly personalized very expressive abstract approach to figuration by the late 1970s um Adams and those uh artists who were deeply influenced by Adams but those leading more towards a Buscema kind of hybrid naturalistic approach um, you know, John Buscema, Sal Buscema, um, you know, all of, well, John Byrne, all those kinds of artists who are working within that were receiving, I think fans were more accommodating and um, th- those approaches were more fashionable. But when I go back and look at that work from the 70s, I pick up the actual comics and I, you know, I go back and flip through the pages. To me, Kirby's approach retains this power and authenticity that is is has a certain you know integrity to it um when i look at somebody like and i don't mean to diss sal buscema but when i look at say those pages or i look at you know some of the his contemporaries at the time working at marvel for example or even working at dc you know that it doesn't hold up 
to me in the same way that, say, uh, Kirby stuff does. You know, there's a kind of um, there's an inherent um, instability to some of that work that was more lauded at the time in that period uh, than, say, there there is in what remains of Kirby's work when we go back and we look at whether it's, you know, we're looking at Commandy or we're looking at late cap or black Panther or, or any of those later, uh, Marvel comics by Kirby, you know, the, the integrity and the strength and the power of Kirby's work remains. And it, 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 it maintains that strength and integrity, I think, and holds up today. Whereas I think when we go back and, and look at some of the stuff from the late seventies, um, that was very popular in the day, it's not quite as, you know, doesn't hold up against the Kirby, uh, stuff that we're talking about. And it's kind of funny because at the time, you know, uh, a lot of what we're talking about, you know, a lot of Kirby was really, you know, finding it difficult in Marvel, uh, those late years because of the kind of, um, Things that he'd always done in his work, really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that inherent kind of um, expressive brutishness that you were talking about that's in that image of the vampire. Um, I pulled it up myself, the space vampire in Cap. Isn't that uh, staggering? It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's like, so it unbelievable. Folks, if you're you're listening now, you got to Google Jack Kirby, Captain America, space vampire and get a, a look at this because it's pretty amazing. <laughs> Um, but you know, those kinds of images in Kirby were there when he was doing black magic in the fifties with, um, <laughs> Joe Simon, you know, those kinds of ugly creatures with the, the, the wrinkled visages, you know, all of that was very much a part of his visual language back then, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, there's also the question of writing because Kirby's writing was very unfashionable and, yeah. uh, at the time at Marvel, uh, the writing and the art go hand in hand. They are really um all part of the same thing uh for yeah. kirby um you know uh and uh there's i mean basically you're dealing with comic book fandom in a period of heightened self-consciousness um uh sean howe's book marvel comics the untold story which is a great history of, of the marvel company uh it's really good on this era it's the era when um active um fans people from fandom were really swept into writing and editorial and drawing uh at marvel and dc yeah. uh, really found that career path opening for them uh it's also a period where across the board in the larger culture comic book sales are once again declining yeah. um and comic books are beginning to be directed toward um comic book shops toward the so-called direct market where the, where the fans gather in order to you know as a life raft um and there, there's that period um where uh, uh, Kirby's um, sort of no-holds-barred storytelling of his very emphatic uh, manner, well, it's just differently emphatic from um, the manner of a lot of the uh, scriptwriter-driven comic books that are really dominating at Marvel in that era, um, which made stabs toward a, a political and social relevance uh, not that Jack Kirby didn't, uh, but he didn't do it in quite the same way. Um, and and what you find um, uh, is uh, a generation of fans um, who are uh, simply convinced uh, <laughs> that Jack Kirby can't write worth a damn. Yeah. Uh, and so this kind of um, dampens uh, their their pleasure in his image making power as well. Uh, I. I 
you know, obviously I was breathing different oxygen than they were because because <laughs> I don't I don't see these things that way. And a lot of the vaunted comic books of that period, uh, um, you know, uh, don't appeal to me as much as the Kirby comics from that period. Of course, I'm a helpless Kirby fan, so you know, obviously I have to make some allowances for my bias. <laughs> uh, yeah. my, my bias there uh, um, but there's a lot of provocative ideas mm-hmm. um, in Kirby and I think oh, subsequent yeah. generations of comic book writers and artists actually did uh, treasure that they did uh, learn to recognize that um, that um, there's a lot of of really provocative ideas uh, uh, happening oh, uh, in, in, in these things uh, um uh, and you you can't say that the delivery was subtle because often it wasn't. <laughs> uh, uh, but if I'm going to be bashed over the head by anyone, I want it to be Jack Kirby. You know, <laughs> uh, um, um, and and there are uh, along the way um, subtleties. I, I found that when I, when I read the Fourth World comics, which I didn't actually get to read uh, in their entirety until my 20s, um, that those comics were thought provoking and and um, disturbing uh, often in ways beyond the initial excitement of the story. I mean, you could sort of feel your pulse race when you read those things, but there was also a lot of dark insinuation in those comics, and you could go back and uh, really feel like uh, you were having, well, a really substantial reading experience. Let's put, it, yeah. <laughs> let's put it that way. Despite those who complained that you didn't get enough story progression in a single issue's worth of Kirby, uh, um, of course, Kirby looks positively dense compared to the so-called decompressed storytelling of of uh, monthly Marvel and DC comics today. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think we have to factor uh, manga and anime and their enormous worldwide influence into uh, storytelling and pacing in American uh, comic periodicals today um that that's um you know that's that's huge too uh, oh yeah so, absolutely uh, it's not just the image generation and the people that they may have emulated like perez and Byrne, and then before them adams and kirby but it's also like if i look at chris Bacallo or i don't know ed mcginnis or different artists that have drawn like a lot of maybe 21st century marvel comics i i see a lot of manga kind of mm-hmm. poking through uh, and I, I'm not averse to that. I, I, I dig that too, but it, it goes hand in hand with a different approach to pacing and with the assumption that the work will subsequently subsequently be collected into trade paperbacks or made available for streaming. You know, so that all affects um, uh, the storytelling uh, um, sometimes positively, uh, sometimes um, uh, for me negatively. It depends. It depends on the particular. On the particular book but yeah i do think you're right that kirby's tendencies throughout the mid 60s um are really um intensified um by the sh- change towards smaller boards um mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the production art for the comics so there's there's a graphic tendency uh, that for me really pops in like mid 1960s Fantastic Four and Thor, um, but the tendency um, after the late 60s is you know toward even fewer panels per page uh, on yeah. average. I think oh, uh, yeah. uh, uh, intensifies that. I've often theorized, and I couldn't prove it at all, but the way that Kirby would tend to divide a lot of his comics of the early 
mid 70s and after into chapters yeah these chapter headings it meant there were a lot of full page drawings because there were chapter headings and i often wondered if kirby didn't consider a chapter of commandy to be like a day's work in penciling i can't prove that but if you look at how a typical issue of commandy the last boy on earth would have maybe four chapters and all told the story might be 20 pages at most mm-hmm. <laughs> right but it would have four movements or kind of four beats and each would be given a name and this kind of emphatic screaming like tabloid news headline type that kirby would come up with you know so there'd be like the emphatic screaming title page for each chunk uh, so you were constantly getting goosed right like there'd be a momentary <laughs> respite and then like boom there'd be another segment and like you know you could almost imagine that a comic book like commandy could have been um, serialized in a weekly tabloid or something yeah, where you yeah. get a handful of pages at one time. Uh, um, uh, the, you know, that was really exciting to me. Um, it, it, it got me to think about the relationship between the rhythm that I was experiencing as a reader and possibly the rhythm of what was going on on Kirby's drawing board, right, in terms of how many pages he might... Um, pencil in a day i mean that's strictly guesswork on my part but i sort of feel like uh you, you know he would prime the pump several times yeah <laughs> in one of those issues you know uh um uh, uh and that's uh, so different from the prevailing storytelling of a lot of marvel and dc style comics of 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 that era i, I kind of loved it though i and it, when i look at that 70s mannerism of the many many chapters mm-hmm. i feel like each chapter header is sort of like the the decorative splash or uh, half splash you know the title page that you would get in a simon and kirby yeah. kind of comic whether it was black magic or young romance you would get right. some kind of emphatic header with that sort of tabloid copy you know that was intense yeah but uh, kind of of uh, tabloid copy combined with in kirby's case vatic wisdom and and, <laughs> and weird verbal poetry but you would you would get you would get it and it was like oh that's exciting you know uh um uh, uh and come to think of it he he did find through the chapter headers a way to tuck several full page drawings even into like a 17 to 20 page comic right well you, yeah Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, you had a thought. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you. no, no. Oh, I was Go just ahead. thinking that that in terms of his working day, you know, uh, it would be interesting. I, I would think the guy who would know this would be Mark Evanier, and he he'd be able to illuminate how many pages he did in a day, and would he go from Commandy doing you know four to six pages in a chapter, and then move over to something else? Um, was it a an easy way to move between, you know, different books or different stories within the same day or the same couple of days or whatnot. Um, it is an interesting rhythm of storytelling though. And he certainly, they did that back in the, he and Simon and Kirby did that periodically. Right. Um, it's always, it was always kind of part of his storytelling, even like the early issues of fantastic four broken up into chapters. Uh, in those early issues, um, it's only, I think, as as Fantastic Four develops, uh, the series develops, that they sort of shy away from that, maybe. Um, sort of reminds me of John Lennon and his harmonica uh, being a part of early Beatles, and then it's not, and then it comes back again. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's kind of interesting to think about it as a way of thinking of story structure, but also 
how organizing one's working life and one's life, you know, experiences and the things you have to do during the day, how it sort of worked together like that. If there was a kind of symbol. Yeah, I've, I've often found myself wondering if Kirby would simply power through one book and draw it and write it all and then power through another yeah. and do that a few times a month because he was very prolific right. uh, or whether he was juggling, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've got to admit, my preferred sort of fantasy image is all speculative on my part, is that he did each book one at a time in its entirety and then moved on. But that's only because I can't really imagine how someone would maintain that intensity of focus yeah. uh, and commitment to a particular story <laughs> without right. powering through that way. I don't actually know for a fact well, that he worked in that way. It was just, it's just, it's, um, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's... Um, it would be interesting to ask Mark Evanier uh, uh, that question because I know he saw Kirby working and sat with him while while Jack Kirby worked on a number of projects. And one of the, the stories that comes to my mind is Mark Evanier mentions somewhere along the line, maybe it was in a Kirby collector or something, um, where Jack Kirby had pages. Sometimes he had drawn pages that wouldn't fit within an issue and he'd have them on the side and then he'd interject them maybe at a certain place where originally he hadn't intended it, but he brings it back and, and it pops in and it fits, you know, someplace else. And that kind of suggests to me that he was capable of, you know, working uh, he was multitasking, if you will, with multiple comics. Um, it sort of suggests this ability, but you're right. The intensity of focus on all of his comics is really striking. Uh, you know, as a reader, the intensity of the experience, it just overwhelms you with this intensity. Uh, you know, this concentrated focus on what is happening to Commandy in this particular issue or Mr. Miracle or OMAC or whatever. You, you, you you experience it full blown, you know, without, even though it's broken into chapters, it mm -hmm. doesn't, mm -hmm. it feels like one united experience. So it, mm -hmm. it doesn't, it's kind of hard to imagine him stepping away from that. I know I can't do that. Like mm -hmm. I'm not very good at multitasking. If I'm in one world, I have to be in that world. I can't really jump. I don't know how some people do that, you know, jump from one project to another. I'm very much, you know, one mm -hmm. project at a time. And, uh, and it, it's interesting to think about, if Kirby was able to do that. When I was working on the Kirby exhibition here at Cal State Northridge about six years ago, uh, I was uh, blessed to borrow some work and to see some photos uh, by uh, Kirby's friend, David Folkman. Uh, and David had taken a number of uh, studio shots, photos of Jack Kirby at work in, in his home studio there in, in Thousand Oaks. Uh, and I remember that one series of photos showed um, Kirby working on a particular uh, issue of Commandy. Um, I don't remember the issue offhand, but I remember thinking about the lead time and then mm -hmm. and and the months between when the photos were taken um and the actual release of that comic and and i went and found the comic with the pages i could see that he was working on <laughs> but in in these photos um what jack was doing at that moment was actually penciling in dialogue oh okay uh, and it seems that he had drawn a whole page 
before penciling in dialogue. Now, I don't know if he drew a whole chapter or a whole story before going back to finalize dialogue or whether he did that kind of procedure page by page or in small batches. Like mm. maybe he drew a series of pages and then later went back and and completed the dialogue. And for all I know, he was putting down some dialogue and scripting cues while he went. Yeah. Um, but just finalizing it. And one of the disarming things about these photos by David Holtman is that um, Jack Kirby is holding the page that he's dialoguing uh, without benefit of any tape, without any sort of T-square or anything else. He's holding the pages at a slightly canted angle. He's got one hand on the page steadying it, and he's penciling in dialogue with the other hand. Uh, and he's not using uh, uh, any lettering guides or anything like that. He just has a penciled page in front of him, and, and he's got one hand steadying it, and the opposite hand writing in dialogue. Um, and he is not, he hasn't steadied the page with anything. I mean, just like, he, he, he it's, it's amazing. And it's just kind of, it you're looking at it like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, even though he may have gone back and filled in the dialogue or tweaked the dialogue after drawing, I still got a feeling that it was a kind of seamless process for, um, you know, so, uh, it's, it's lovely to see those few images, um, uh, it doesn't give me quite the insight I would want to have into how he worked in you know, these five days or these seven days or how he worked for for the week or whatever. Um, but it is a sign that I'm pretty far gone, that I'm pretty you know, helpless uh, because I spent all this time trying to envision the scene of drawing, uh, which I think some comics art fans end up doing when they're really like they really cathected, you know, <laughs> on onto a particular artist in their career. So I find those kind of questions super interesting for Kirby, as I do for Schultz. I mean, I'm just interested in the autographic quality of the work, the, the handmade nature of it, and I'm kind of interested in imagining it being drawn. You know, that's mm -hmm. in, in, in the act of being drawn. Um, that's maybe that's just my particular mania, but I, <laughs> I, I'm guessing that I'm not the only comics fan that has that. Like, how did he draw this exactly? What was it like when he was drawing? You know, that kind of uh, uh, thing. Um, uh, because um, uh, the work just feels supercharged. So naturally, I have a curiosity about the circumstances of its creation. Well, it's 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 natural, and and certainly, you know, for those of us who who draw and and draw comics, um, you know, we're always going back and trying to figure out what our our influences were up to and how they did what they did, but it's without you know trying to consciously emulate them necessarily. Although when we're very young, that's what we do. But uh, trying to imagine him, you know, I've seen as we all, all of us who are Kirby fans of, you know, for years now in the Kirby collector, uh, followed along with the wonderful, uh, photocopies of the penciled pages that we get to see. And we've seen his lettering in those pages. And what's extraordinary when you think about the production of lettering, when it's hand lettered is the consistency you have to maintain in terms of your letter sizes and forms and whatnot. Um, within a bubble, you know, so that you get the right scale and whatnot. And that Mike Royer or whoever was working after him in the 70s, it was Royer, right, doing the lettering or maybe D. Bruce Berry. Uh, but, but you, you know, you're back in there 
and maintain, you know, make sure that, and I'm imagining that Mike Royer has got to be using a lettering guide while he's doing this, but I, who knows? You have to go back in and make sure that when you're lettering, that it conforms to what he's written. But also, you know, the consistency is l- both legible and and it works within the, the word balloon shape that you've been given. I mean, there's so many subtleties there in regard to translating what Jack has just done freehand. Uh, I can't imagine how it could be done with any great consistency if that's indeed how he was working. It, it's uh, hard to imagine because, you know, his handwriting was clearly um, fairly, you know, uh, quick and, um, uh, you know, off the cuff. And whereas Mike Royer's lettering is clearly, you know, professional lettering uh, meant for reproduction. And, uh, and and that's a different ball game, you know, than when you're just jotting in ideas. But the, the idea, you know, that he's jotting in his dialogue and he's able to do it in such a way that it has consistency and that it has, you know, uh, and Mike Royer can follow it afterwards. It's really quite extraordinary. Uh, it blows my mind, but you know, he was by that time, how many years had he been doing comics and wasn't even thinking about it anymore? Um, really. And and I think that's where his language came from. You know, uh, I, I think that he absorbed all of these cultural influences around him and brought them to bear in his work. And of course, there's also this material of Jack Kirby himself, his life experiences, the, the, you know, the physicality of his scale, his size, his, the size of his hands, the size of his arms, how that all impacts the mark on the page. Mm-hmm. All of that comes together. But, you know, the experience of working all of these years, all of this becomes an internal an internalized language that comes out on the page without at, at some point without any preconception it just happens mm. you know and there's a talking. kind of there's a kind of emphatic uh cadence to the script writing that yeah that matches the uh, matches the drawing mm-hmm. um uh but it's it's not random it's based on um thumping repetition and mm-hmm. stuff uh, it's 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 really uh, potent uh, I I enjoy it uh, right so um, like I'm I happen to be reading from a randomly chosen spread in Captain America number 208 uh-huh. the murky water of the Rio de Muerte is deep and silent and gives no warning of the terrible denizen that inspires its name but he is ever there waiting and listening for prey to come within his grasp like his teeth his senses are razor sharp like his steel sinews his attack is a powerful bone crushing inescapable trap oh, when man. cap draws near he leaps from cover and of course that's the scene setting opening of the issue oh, that's right? so you get this like his teeth this like his sinews this you know and it's um <laughs> it's it's uh um uh it's it's really intense um again gil kane's um quip comes to mind with Kirby. It's a nuclear situation on every page. Uh, <laughs> um, um, uh, this is a wonderful r- remark. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, and you're absolutely right. There, w- 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 nuclear on every page, but I'm also thinking about that Gil Kane remark and, I'm, it, it, and it kind of circles back into what we've been talking about. There is this, Gil Kane was t- saying that he draws an idea of a person. Well, in some regard, you know, 
that's what cartooning is, right? You're drawing, you know, as Chris Ware says, it's graphic design. You know, you're drawing ideas, symbol, not symbols necessarily, but you're 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 working with a pictorial um, language or alphabet, a kind of um, stylization. And Kirby is drawing these abstract ideas of figures, which is exactly. Again, that's the nature. The nature of cartooning is exaggeration and abstraction and simplification. And all of those things are there. And it's there in his writing also. And this kind of, uh, I just love what you just read. It was just brilliant. And and there's this kind of operatic quality, this exaggerated quality that, that fits perfectly within the realm or the idea of the cartoon, the comic book, the exaggeration, the caricature. And all of this kind of move towards towards the, or the embrace, if you will, of the nature of comic art, the nature of comic writing, mm-hmm. if we think of it as the nature is being exaggerated. This was something that I think in a way like it's not missing. Like, I can't say that it's missing from all contemporary comics. It's not true. But it, it's it, there is a, a what is it? An acceptance of. The denial of that, if you will, particularly when I think about its impact, I think about its impact in in something that uh, well, something like superhero films. Okay, there, there there is this kind of tendency within them towards not only the darkness, say, within DC films or something like that, but all of this kind of um, this idea that we need to make the audience believe in this as though it could really be happening. And so our special effects have to be, you know, primo um, CGI, you know, it's got to mesh perfectly. Uh, We have to believe in what is happening to the nth level. And, in some sense, that's a kind of denial of the nature of the cartoon, the nature of the nature of comic art, which is an art of exaggeration. This embrace of naturalism, in a way, in script writing, in, in naturalism, in, in uh, you know special effects, in 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 superhero movies or whatnot, seems to me um, some kind of denial of that which what Kirby is so great at, mm-hmm. and and many of those who followed after him are also very good at. Uh, and that is the the embrace of the nature of of caricature of of exaggeration of mm-hmm. abstraction, um, you know, using it to its nth degree. Kirby is like, like in, in, he's he's what's the word I'm looking for? Not only celebrating, he is he is um, just imbued with this aspect, this nature of his work in comics and cartooning and he exploits it and um oh the word is escaping me and I, I, i'm looking for it everywhere he he pushes it to its extremes you know as far as it can go um this is an artist who is who is well equipped but also completely at ease within the nature of the medium as as it is at its very essence you know what i'm saying and yeah and you're dealing with uh, in live action superhero blockbuster movies. Um, you're dealing with such a different medium, mm. and a, one of the differences I noticed right away is just a difference in pacing. Because instead of taking roughly twenty page serial installments, uh, you're dealing with two or two and a half hours. Yeah. Right, so that's different. Um, but it's also 
the ways in which filmmakers try to reconcile um, the larger-than-life and, and graphic uh, qualities of the comic books with what passes for kind of cinematic naturalism. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes that manifests in forms of rationalization, like Batman's got to have Kevlar armor, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes it manifests in uh, irony, which I think... Uh, fuels the, the the humor the uh, the comic aspects of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so called, and that's not unlike what you know vintage Marvel comics of the Stan Lee era would do, kind of leavening the seriousness with a lot of ironic asides. Mm -hmm. um, it's not quite the same as comic book banter, but there's an understanding at Marvel Studios that uh, even the most dire film stories have to be. Um, uh, leavened by humor. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I recently watched all four hours of Zack Snyder's Justice League, the only version of that that I've ever seen, and, and it's the only time I ever will see it. Over three or four days, I watched it in dribs and drabs, and it, boy, it was humorless. It was a humorless slog. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, um, it was a humorless slog um, based on a, a really um, thoughtless kind of strip mining, or at least... Um, nominal name checking of some Jack Kirby ideas among other things that were in it. Mm -hmm. uh, um, but there's this, you know, there's this uh, rationalization. Um, sometimes it does take the form of um, uh, you know, kind of quipping irony, you know, like uh, Hugh Jackman in an X-Men film mm -hmm. um, commenting on his X-Men uniform saying, what did you expect? Yellow spandex? You know, <laughs> it's clearly a reference to the comic books with their long history of Wolverine and yellow spandex. Um, um, you know, sometimes it takes the form of those ridiculous sort of Q division scenes in the Dark Knight films. You know, Q division from the Bond films where yeah. somebody's giving, you know, you know, like um, uh, Bruce Wayne's equivalent of, of Q um Lucius Fox is giving him all these gizmos, like his razor edge battering and his Kevlar armor and stuff. <laughs> like, you know, so it's like the 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 pornography of of materiel of like um of like weapons and stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like very soldier fortuny, right? It's like, oh, come on, man. You know, <laughs> uh, at at bottom though, you know, these are still uh, larger than life. Um, uh, fantasies and films that are reluctant to own that uh, are often really unsatisfying to me. There's got to be a reason why my favorite, you know, uh, superhero feature films are all animated, like Into the Spider-Verse and The Incredibles. Mm -hmm. I, and, and that's true. That my favorite films of that genre are all, you know, um, full of, they're animated and they're full of boisterous image making and a, um, a, a kind of... Um, enjoy that um, uh, maybe because the animation looks great in the context of animation but cgi looks weightless and fake in the context of live action yeah. <laughs> so there's just an inconsistency in the representational uh uh you know moves um that that they make um Could yeah i was uh, really of an age to groove on uh, mid-70s kirby at a time when slightly older fans we're gravitating toward comics written by Steve Englehart and Don McGregor and mm -hmm. and and uh, 
uh, Jim Starlin and Doug Minch and other uh, uh, writers, many of whom were working with Kirby as concepts, um, and some of whom sought to rationalize those or make them uh, more contemporary or socially and politically engaged in their own ways. And, you know, there's still a lot of classic work that comes out of that era. Um, but, uh, you know, as a 10 year old, I was bewildered that, you know, why, you know, um, I don't know, teenage or young adult comic book fans um, would, would snub certain Kirby comics. I'm like, no, man, <laughs> these are so good. You know, why do you not like them? <laughs> so that, that's just my own experience talking, I guess. And now for a message from our sponsor. Hey, gang, time for the seventh inning stretch. Get yourself a drink, a nosh, if you will. And while you're doing that, I'd like to tell you a little bit about my latest project, Green Screen, which is a Kickstarter beginning in August. Green Screen is a 36-page full-color comic book. It's a fun comedy fantasy adventure for readers who love movies, Doctor Who, Rick and Morty, and Mad Magazine's early comic book parodies. Hollywood film star Bella Dilemma and her backstage companions have been cast adrift aboard their movie set spaceship and pulled into the Cineverse, an alternate dimension where every movie ever made is a real world. Now they're about to crash land on an alien planet that looks eerily like a much-loved animated film from the past. Ever wonder what happens to movie characters after the credits have rolled? Did Scarlett O'Hara win back Rhett Butler? What did Charlton Heston find beyond the Statue of Liberty? Did Snow White and her prince really live happily ever after? Green Screen has the answers. This Kickstarter has lots of great reward tiers, one of which is a second comic book, Green Screen Number 00, the origin story that tells how it all began. There's stickers and magnets and prints and t-shirts at a variety of different contributor levels. You can get a sneak peek over at greenscreencomic.com. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at greenscreencomic to keep up with the latest news and for the kickoff announcement for the Green Screen Kickstarter, August 2021. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you this August on Kickstarter. We now resume our regular programming, already in progress. What was your first, uh, I mean, this is kind of, um, you know, simple question, but what was your, your first Kirby comic? You know, it ought to be a simple question, but it really isn't because I can't remember what it was. <laughs> I have memories of the first ones that I bought, uh, uh -huh. and those memories are tied up not only with the pleasure of reading, but also the pleasure of relative autonomy, of riding my bike over to the store and buying them myself with my right. so-called allowance money. Uh, so that whole experience... Um, which uh, allowed me to buy comics myself as maybe an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, whatever, was an experience of autonomy. And often the comics were lousy and sometimes they were good, but it didn't matter because the experience belonged to me. And I, I sort of remember Kirby comics from that period, but I know that I was reading Kirby comics before that. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that I had a lot of exposure to Kirby Sinnott era Fantastic Four, perhaps through Marvel's Greatest Comics, which was the usual reprint series oh, at the yeah. time. Um, I have a memory of reading the doppelganger issue of The Demon in my grandmother's house in, in uh, Texas, uh, well before I was buying comic books with quote-unquote my own money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, So uh, I know I had some exposure to scattered Kirby comics um, before 
I was the one buying them or bringing them round or bringing them into the house, you know. Um, I do remember that I had picked up a few issues of Commandy from a school friend who was moving away, departing, and getting rid of a bag full of comics. Uh, and I do remember uh, the first time I bought an issue of Commandy off the stands, which is a double size issue that reprinted um, Commandy's origin story. Um, that was issue 32, and I bought that. And it was the beginning of many, many months of following uh, Commandy, even after Kirby had left. So I know that was an important issue to me because I bought it. You know, I was at the base exchange, the BX, at the Air Force Base where I was growing up at the time, and I bought that book. And at that point, I would follow anything then by Kirby. So I was buying the new, you know, OMAX. I was buying Captain America and the Eternals and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but Kirby was already familiar to me. So if, if I just say, oh, Commandy number 32, that's not really the whole story because there's a bunch of stuff that's, I vaguely remember, and then there's, there must be other stuff that's below the threshold of conscious memory, stuff I can't summon up. So the, the Kirby, like Fantastic Four look, was already naturalized for me as a kid. But granted, I saw a lot of other artists imitate it, and I saw the Hanna-Barbera Fantastic Four cartoon on television when I was a young kid, things like that. Um, I had also read, by the time I was maybe 10 or 11, Jim Steranko's History of Comics, which... Uh -huh. Um, had a chapter devoted to Captain America, which was also partly devoted to the uh, early career story of Kirby. And as flawed as Steranko's history of comics is as a full history, it influenced me greatly. Uh, it's always been the thing by Jim Steranko I was most grateful for was actually the two volumes of that history. And so that's how I learned about, uh, I think it's how I learned about artists like uh, Will Eisner. Uh-huh. Uh, who my brother and I were also seeing in the War and Spirit reprints in that era. I think yeah. it's how I learned about artists like, you know, C.C. Beck or Mort Meskin or Jerry Robinson. And it's how I learned that Kirby was already a living legend. So I was kind of conscious that I was buying work by a famous comic book artist when I started buying Commandy at about age 10. <laughs> so I was mad for the mid-70s Kirby because it was new, but I miss most of the fourth world because... I didn't have access to or knowledge of comic book stores, really. So if a comic book was two years old, it was beyond my reach. It might as well have been 10 years old. I mean, it's just so I, I didn't read the fourth world books, except as a kid, I did go buy New Gods one and Mr. Miracle one at a comic convention or, or, or swap meet. And I had to pay like 10 times the cost of a new comic book to get each one of those, wow. which to me was shocking. I paid like $3.50 for new cuts. Wow. You know, so it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I went back and scooped up all the rest of those books. But I read all the, like, after Jack Kirby's heart was broken, filling out his DC contract stuff. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and, I, and I read... Um, uh, you know, the Captain America, Black Panther, Eternals, 2001 kind of era yeah. of of Kirby. Um, and, of course, there were reprints of Kirby all the time. So I read, like, the Marvel Treasury Fantastic Four mm -hmm. that had an edited version of the Galactus trilogy in it. Yeah. That kind of thing. I think I read the first Black Panther story in Marvel's Greatest Comics. And so all that stuff was around because Marvel just so determinedly kept those kept reprinting those things. I mean, more Kirby work was coming out of Marvel when Kirby was under contract with DC yeah. <laughs> than before. Amazing. So I, I saw I saw plenty of things um, like the Tales of Suspense cab stories were reprinted in some uh, Marvel Monthly in the 70s, and I had a bunch of those. 
Uh, I think Commandy was a real kicker for me. Um, uh, you know, I, I really love that. Um, um, and of course, I followed Kirby over back over to Marvel for Cap. Mm -hmm. um, the ones that I kept uh, always were like Commandy and the Eternals. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I kept those. Those were really important comics to me. They weren't the only ones I kept. I didn't keep all the Cap ones. Later, I went back and bought them again. <laughs> I thought, you dope, you know. Um, they, they weren't my faves. Uh, Bicentennial Battles, the Captain America treasure, which was gigantic, was a fave of mine, and I've always kept the copy that I had as as a, as a young kid uh, of that one. Okay. Um, yeah, um, Bicentennial Battles is, I think, I, there's no Captain America story I enjoy more than that one. I, it's, I know. It's, so it's, much fun. It's, it, it's um, um, on the nose, in your face. Uh, um, it's beautiful. The the ending uh, with all the children is completely corny, and I love it. It absolutely <laughs> works for me. It's it's a if you like a corny affirmation of the dream of America, yeah. uh, or a group of like a yeah, as we would say, um, might be tempted to say today, a diverse group of kids and caps among them after all the mayhem and violence. Uh, of this kind of you know slaughterhouse five narrative of jumping around industry, <laughs> Cap ends up with a bunch of kids, and it's like idyllic for the last few pages. It's like, yeah, uh, that really feels like Jack Kirby talking to me. Um, yeah, uh, and the closest thing to an affirmation that Captain America comics were capable of uh, in 1976 in the post Watergate, post Vietnam era. You know, um, plenty of darkness, looming darkness in that story. But I love that bit with the kids where Cap is with the girls and boys at the end of that comic. It's it's really great. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I I love Commandy. That was really formative for me. And my my favorite Marvel comics are like. Uh, Kirby Senate era 65 to 67 68 ish kind of fantastic four that 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 stuff floats my boat um, aesthetically I, now I go back and read them and I see all the seams of a very um, uh, a, a less than fully collaborative process between Kirby and Stanley I can kind of see the stitches you know I go back mm -hmm. and look at that um, but I still love a lot of of those books um uh, i loved how a kirby book would nominally be about this hero or this team and then it would gradually grow a supporting cast whether the supporting cast was you know um uh, supposedly an american indian college student or a talking dog the supporting <laughs> cast was always <laughs> i love that too. I, I enjoyed that uh, um, guy on uh, a surfboard yeah, that's right. I, I enjoyed that stuff a lot. So I was really imprinting on mid-70s Kirby. Now, I wasn't that particular. I would also read faux Kirby by other artists like Keith Giffen, you know, or Rich uh -huh. Buckler. I would read Rich that Buckley, stuff. Yeah. You know, Keith Giffen and Mike Royer did faux Kirby on The Defenders, written by the late David Anthony Kraft, who passed yeah. a few weeks ago. Um, and there's a splash uh, by Giffen in the faux Kirby mode, or Giffen and Royer, that sold me on Defender. So I started buying that book for many months because I just liked the look of that. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of issues of that title that were very much um, uh, in a uh, imitative, you know, kind of Kirby mode. And I, I tried a lot of that stuff, you know, and I read Commandy for near two years or something like that after Kirby left because. You know, I wanted to believe it was still Commandy, and I, you know, none of the post Kirby issues were really satisfying, um, in in hindsight. Uh, uh, but you know, I gravitated toward those things 
it was the stuff that Jack Kirby had actually done himself that that lingered with me, that kind of stayed. Um, yeah. But sure, like a lot of comics readers, I'd, I'd read Imitation Kirby and and you know try to find um, try to find the pleasure in it, you know. Uh, so. Um, and there was pleasure to be had in some of that stuff, but it's interesting looking at Jack at Rich Buckler's Fantastic Four from the seventies, and you know Buckler had this capacity. You know, he's underrated talent, really. Um, had this capacity for mimicking, you know, other styles, and um, you know he did a passable Kirby pastiche, but it ne- while it it never had the power. You know, as enjoyable as some of Rich Buckler's stuff was on the FF, it didn't, it, it lacked the, you know, the, the power that Kirby inherently had. And I remember, you know, waiting for Kirby to come back to Marvel and hoping, you know, that he would take over the Fantastic Four again. Of course, it never, it never happened, but, um, that was, the, that was kind of like the dream, you know, mm-hmm. of that period of time. Um, uh, so Again, among Kirby fans, the other great debate, you know, uh, one of the great debates, of course, is Kirby Inkers. And I think you said Sinnott was your favorite. Is that is that true? Uh, or do you have different favorites at different times? Well, I, I happen to love the Sinnott period on Fantastic Four. And, of course, Joe Sinnott inked Fantastic Four over so many other pencilers in the decades that followed that um, a Fantastic Four look, which for a time almost felt like a Marvel house look, Mm -hmm. uh, was very much a Senate look. It's not that Senate is my, you know, hands down favorite Kirby inker, but when I see the Fantastic Four in my head, you know, if I close my eyes and look at Fantastic Four images on the inside of my eyelids, (laughs) they're Mm -hmm. going to look like they were inked by Joe Senate. I mean, it's just kind of, you know, uh, and it happened that the book was on fire narratively. It was just full of so many yeah. great ideas. And oh that, again, that expanding cast and all of that. And so I associate that vibe with a really fertile period, you know, where yeah, FF was both fun to look at and um, full of dizzying uh, ideas. I mean, the Inker question is a question that a lot of Kirby fans ask because I you know, on the one hand, Kirby is an auteur. On the other hand, he very seldom worked alone. Right. Uh, almost every one of his published um, uh, uh, comic book works uh, is um, substantially touched and shaped by other hands. And, uh, you know, if you have an auteur sort of fixation on Kirby, I do. You know, mm-hmm. if you have, you know... You know, you know, you're an artist when even the least work or the, or the most um, difficult or fumbling work by your author interests you more than a lot <laughs> of other people's best work, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like you know, you know, you're a Hitchcock fan when you can talk for hours about Family Plot or something. You know, it's like yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you, you're rendered helpless by your enthusiasm, and I, I have that with Kirby. But it, it has to be admitted that the whole auteur thing is a difficult thing with Kirby because uh, he, he um, the conditions he worked under, uh, you know, conditions he acceded to that he knew he was working under involved other people doing um, the finishes. Um, I think he was interested in generating stories uh, for the readers, of course, the embellishment, the inking and stuff is a really important part of that experience, yeah. right? Um, and so we have to ask this question about inkers because... You know, what we imagine as pure Kirby, 
you know, usually isn't uh, unless we are following the Jack Kirby Collector or the Kirby Museum and other sources that give us access to photocopies of of Kirby pencils, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then we evaluate inkers in terms of their quote-unquote fidelity uh, to those pencils. Um, so, you know, there is a notion of authorship that has to be kind of a qualified notion when you're dealing with Kirby. And, uh, you know, uh, and any fan who's really collected and, and gazed at Kirby work for a while uh, is aware that there's an inconsistency of finish between different projects. Yeah. Um, and so we have to ask this question, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the open secret is our, our tour cartoonist here is actually kind of like a series of different cartoonists because Kirby Royer is different from Kirby Sinnott, which is different from Kirby Stone, which is different from Kirby Simon, right? Yeah. So, um, and fans fight about that stuff. You know, lots of people dump on Vince Coletta's inking. I do, generally, because I generally don't like it. Um, but Kirby, you know, did uh, exceed to working with Coletta inking him for a long time. And that's, that's just something you have to accept. And, of course, there are a few ink jobs by Coletta that are in my mind's eye that are that are quite wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, I think New Gods number one looks really bitchin', for example. Yeah. Not as cool as the Mike Royer issues that follow a few months later, in my opinion. Um, uh, uh, I love Royer, um, uh, and I especially am fascinated by Royer because um, many years after I became a Jack Kirby collector, I finally realized what Royer tended to draw like when he was drawing on his own, and it was not anything like Jack Kirby. Yeah, and yeah. I suddenly realized uh, how intentional the Kirby-Royer effect was, how intentional Mike Royer was about his inks and his lettering. Um, and I think the first time I really recognized this, I was buying a Gladstone reprint of a Carl Barks uh, Disney Duck comic in the <laughs> 80s, and it had a cover of Donald and his nephews drawn by Mike Royer. Ah. Uh, and it had these, uh, you know, rounded Disney-fied forms, Barksian, cute, uh -huh. really well drawn. And then later, of course, I would learn from reading interviews that for many years, Mike Royer was a staff artist at Disney. Yeah. Uh, one of the things he did for so long was drawing um, um, uh, or redrawing the Disney version of Winnie the Pooh for various kinds of merchandising. Right. And so Royer was really comfortable working in a rounded um, mm -hmm. um, style. He was really comfortable yeah. working in a Bigfoot style. Um, he did a lot of funny animal art and Disney animation based art. Um, and there is a softness and, and roundness and fullness uh, um, about Mike Royer's um, artwork um, when he is not. Um, uh, inking uh, others. Um, and so, in, in his way, I mean, Royer gets thought of as the rugged inker, especially for those who prefer a slick kind of Senate finish to a Royer finish. But Mike Royer is really not a rugged artist in that way. Yeah. Yeah. The reason that Kirby Royer looks rugged is because, first of all, Kirby hired Royer. You know, so it wasn't a third party, um, a Stan Lee or another editor hiring an inker to complete a process. It was Kirby uh, essentially auditioning an inker, evaluating his work, and hiring him, right. right? So that was one thing. It was Kirby asserting his will, you know. Yeah. 
But also, uh, Royer, and he said this again and again in his interviews, always charming, gracious interviews, um, you know, made a decision that he thought people ought to see more of Jack's underdrawing uh, in the finished work. The idea that he simply traced it uh, is kind of ridiculous when you yeah. look at how the, the inflected line, the variation of line weight uh, uh, in the inking, and, and you look at how confident that was from the very first. I think the first one of those Royer jobs was Spawn, New Gods number five. Yeah. And it's like, my God, from the very first, he came roaring out the gate. Um, and he's very confident about that inflected line, um, uh, uh, doing a thick to thin or thin to thick line uh, with brush inking that can capture some of the robustness or energy of Kirby's pencil. I forget who said this in an interview, but some artist um, said that they, they they felt that Kirby penciling, it was almost as if Kirby was drawing like with the carpenter's pencil, ah. and just bearing down with tremendous weight and force with that penciling. Um, and you can sort of see that uh, in reproductions of the pencils. But when you look at Royer, um, he had an uncanny way of keeping the ruggedness in uh, without um, looking like he was fussily tracing something. I remember when Tom Kraft designed the before and after um, uh, iPad app that we used in our Kirby exhibition, where we had a commandy story before inks and after based on the surviving photocopied pencils that had been scanned and cleaned up, and then the original art, which had been fully inked. And you could literally swipe your finger over the image and move from pencils to inks. And Royer was just absolutely unerring. I mean, you really did feel like you were seeing um, a bolder, darker version of the pencils when you swiped your finger over and got the inks. But that's not an easy thing to do, because if you're just really trying to move line by line and 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 imitate, what you tend to get is a lot of fussy hatching and small broken lines. And that's not Royer. Royer's like, there's a big liquid line and it is a long line and he is perfectly comfortable moving it around from thick to thin and inflecting it um, while still absolutely capturing the contours of the Kirby drawing. Like that's, it's, it's uncanny and it, it really great um, brush control. Uh, Joe Sinnott did as well, and, and Sinnott most of the time brought um, um, uh, a, um, a more elegant um, uh, look. Uh, you could really see the slick inking sheen on Sinnott, because that's partly what he was hired to bring, although Sinnott would say that he slicked it up less when he was inking Kirby later, because he felt right. like maybe he'd overdone it. But, you know, doing it the way he did it in 1965-66 is what Stanley hired him to do. So mm -hmm. Sinnott was great, a great uh, texture inker and a great command of surfaces. Um, uh, I love Royer uh, the best, because I think he's just as accomplished, and I like the really rugged, I see what you're saying, like post-67, post-68 Kirby the best. And I also like those comics um, uh, of, of Kirby's, like Fourth World comics, um, um, things like that. Um, I, I like them even more than, than the 60s Kirby comics. Um, uh, you know, maybe uh, uh, in some ways, the you know, uh, I always kind of loved what I thought was a Simon and Kirby shop look of inking. Uh -huh. yeah. It's definitely a different era. And I thought a lot of that was down to Joe Simon. Yeah. Uh, I've actually kind of come to the conclusion that a lot of it was down to Kirby inking Kirby, which we're not used to seeing a lot of. Um, but I, I love that um, 
what Harry Mendrick calls picket fence, cross-hatching, like in the clothing folds and stuff that you see in a Simon Kirby book. Mm-hmm. And I love the, the dark shadows, like if you look at like a black magic job, for example. Yeah. And see that, and that's the precursor to what fans started calling Kirby Crackle decades later, was Kirby's um, way of inking solid blacks so that they weren't solid, that spot blacks weren't mm-hmm. completely solid. Instead, they were sort of, <laughs> you know, um, they they seemed energetic um, because the solids weren't quite solid. Um, so you felt like even the shadows were kind of coruscating yes. and, and moving and shifting. I tell you what I really love is seeing that technique at work when Kirby's drawing like stone and wood. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Just to think that sensitive inkers would really catch. Um, that's the beautiful thing about Eternals is you get the high-tech sheen and the Kirby like chrome squiggles mm-hmm. and silver surf kind of chrome squiggles, but you also get the rugged stones. You get it in the same book. Yeah, you had the same thing with 2001, a book that drove yeah. me crazy as a kid because it had no continuity. And now I love it. Like you get primitivist Kirby and futurist Kirby in the same 20-page story. What are you <laughs> complaining about? Right. <laughs> you know, um, and Kirby's own. Um, you know, when Kirby inked Kirby uh, in the Simon and Kirby era, which he he didn't um, do as often, I suppose as I would have liked to see. You you get to see um, his inked interpretation. Of of those penciling habits that he has, um, I think maybe a lot of people who ink Kirby had seen his inks, uh, uh, and like uh, in the Simon and Kirby era, they emulated that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on the other hand, that when Kirby Senate clicked so well in Fantastic Four in the late '60s, um, that Senate's work on Kirby maybe brought out things in Kirby's pencils as well. So I think there was an interesting little synergy going on, um, going on there. The Kirby dot thing becomes yeah. Kirby dot because it's sort of regularized by Senate. Um, but the bit of having all these, uh, um, uh, what would you call them? Um, strokes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, um, that actually predates like the Marvel 60s period because you can kind of see it um, emerging in that inking style that again you see in a, some of a lot of the Simon and Kirby jobs. So I think Kirby was a great Kirby inker. I think he just rarely was one. You know, mm-hmm. so Kirby was a great inker of his own stuff who reportedly disliked doing it. Um, if he disliked doing it, it's simply because he was anxious to put down another story. I think so too. Yeah. Spend his time generating another story instead of inking one that was done. You know. Um, but I love Kirby inking Kirby. I love Senate on Kirby. Um, I love Royer on Kirby. Um, sometimes the the Chick Stone kind of early mid '60s look is a lot of fun. It's it's inconsistent, but Stone lays down the contour lines around those characters as if he were limbing an animation cell. I mean, yes. Thick, oh, very much. So, yeah. Thick and chunky. And there's, you know, the, the Senate uh, Kirby Ben Grimm will always be the definitive one, but um, the, the Kirby Stone Ben Grimm, where he really looks like a bunch of shattered pottery shards glued back together, is <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's so, really cool. It's, yeah. it's, it's a really cool... Um, uh, look, um, uh, you know, I, I think Senate is one of the reasons why 
Kirby's departure from Marvel in 1970s, as painful as it was, was not as damaging as it might otherwise been. <laughs> because if you still had Joe Sinnott inking FF. Right. You know, yeah. As long as you had that um, sense of consistency. So there, are, there are weird inking jobs that are fun to look at, like Herb Trimpey on Kirby in the Bicentennial Battles book, or Bill Everett doing a couple of Kirby fill-in jobs. On um, Inhumans, Barry Smith. Yeah, you know, so there is some. It would be fun to think about seeing more um, um, inks by those by those people. Yeah, 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 definitely, because they all brought something different. I'm thinking now of was it Saul Brodsky did a, a Kirby Captain America story or two? He, he uh, might have. He was such a, a pinch hitter for Stanley. Yeah, and the, those wonderful, uh, you know, Frank Giacoya brought some interesting. Yeah, Jacoya and Trimpey's inks both on that bicentennial battle yeah. were inked by various hands. Yeah. Uh, um, there's some spectacular, uh, um, spectacular work. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That. They they did all bring different things. Uh, uh, I I agree. Um, you know, um, I I don't think there's much sport in identifying Kirby inkers I don't like, yeah. except except the, the the fascination of explaining what it is that I think was there in the Kirby work that that their finishes don't capture, right? So mm-hmm. that has some value for me as an analytic exercise. <laughs> you know, so like dumping on Vince Coletta is like shooting fish in a barrel. That's not but it, it sort of teaches me about things that I think I'm valuing about Kirby pencils, whether or not they survive into the published work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, like um, fine pin cross hatching. Yeah, in large areas of shadow, and that 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 doesn't work for me in Kirby, because right. I know that it's at odds with the texture of the pencils, and it it just looks fussy. Oh, uh, and you you occasionally see that in a Coletta job. Yeah. Uh, you see fussiness um, with this kind of fine hatching, um, and it's um, uh, you know it, it it's it can be uh, a little. <laughs> Uh, disconcerting to see because uh, you, you know that the, the artwork is tending towards something very bold um, but the surfaces like you know I don't know I just prefer my Jack Kirby none of it to look as if it was inked with a crow quill I'm just not into that exactly from Coletta you know is that yeah, crow quill? and expediency you know, yeah. um, there are there are issues where I think Coletta does a nice job, particularly some of the early Fourth World uh, stuff. Um, yeah. I'm looking at a Mister Miracle right there's now. There's also some terrible, like Jimmy Olsen's though, that he oh my during God. that period, where there's just blotty inks and probably yeah. a bunch of assistants having hands on the work, and it's like, yeah. okay, man, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, def- you know, I'm not a fan of uh, of Coletta at all, but. Um, to to as as I'm going through, uh, I'm looking at a, um, a fourth world omnibus. I'm looking the the book where Spawn uh, New Gods number five is, and you know you come across as you were talking about. I was looking at the Mike Royer uh, inking of the double page spread uh, that opens Spawn. Yeah, uh, you know, um, just an extraordinary um, image. You know, the 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 Promethean galaxy is. Uh, um as he says and it's yeah. it's really extraordinary this massive green figure you know um locked onto this rock and and uh royer's just got this capability and i don't think joe sinnett would have done this although he did his own 
you know, powerful and, and this grandiose quality comes through. Um, but Royer's got this like massive, you know, um, you know, Edmund Burke's idea of the sublime, you know, this frightening power yeah. evident in this image is just, and which Royer was capable of, of, of conveying, you know. Yeah, I'm really hooked on that. And I think part of it for me is the drama of being a little kid, being a 9, 10, 11, 12 year old comic book collector and seeing um, things that were both grand and frightening in that way. Yeah. I, I think I probably imprinted on that. It reminds me of times in my life when I'd be running home from my friend's place up the hill and imagining that, you know, giant monsters, Gorgo or Godzilla or whatever, were stamping the neighborhood as I'm running downhill at home. And like the goose flesh would stand up on my arms as I'm running. I would just get so excited by my own ridiculous imaginings, um, <laughs> which seemed grand and fatal at the same time. Uh, they were all knockoffs of monster movies and comic books I'd read, I'm sure. But, you know, at, at, at the time, I just felt so carried away with imagining mm -hmm. uh, these things that were so big and inevitably um, a little threatening as well as grand. And I, I, I think I, I really imprinted on that. Uh, so in Arishem, uh, the fourth host steps out of the celestial vehicle with the formula for apocalypse imprinted on his palm. You know, oh. um, uh, I'm not sure if I can s say this in what might be generally a family-friendly podcast. I don't know, but for me, that was like, holy shit! Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, that just blew the top of my head off um, yeah. as as a kid, and I never stopped wanting to re-experience that. You know, uh, um, although it turns out that other people imitating things in that vein are usually not as satisfying to me no. yeah. as just going back and and reading um, the Kirby book. You know, like, yeah. Uh, if Earth fails, Earth dies. Like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> you're 11 or 12 years old reading that. Um, and and the thing about Kirby is he usually associated power with the gigantic. Yes. Mm -hmm. Although, of course, the, the power is brought low in the Promethean galaxy you know, because the huge powerful figure is enchained and forever suffering yes. and, and never able to escape. But, but Kirby, I often feel like like maybe like a two-year-old feels looking up at big tall people in the world mm -hmm. you're kind of overawed by that and i sort of feel like uh i was a little overawed as a young reader and and that maybe kirby's work captures that feeling for him Absolutely. as well that you're staring up at big things um you know because power is almost always gigantic Yes. Uh, and the one exception that I can think of to that is in the Hunger Dogs graphic novel, where the real source of power is miniaturization. It's called Micromark. Uh, and Micromark, uh, it turns out, is more powerful than the big giant things in the Hunger Dogs. Uh, um, that's that weird comic, too, where one almost feels sympathetic or sorry for Darkseid, because even he has almost been rendered obsolete by change in the story uh and the change a lot of it has to do with micro mark as kirby calls it <laughs> you know so there's like this belated recognition of kirby that the real power lies in micro miniaturization in the post-transistor age right yeah um, it's not that kirby never glommed onto that before because look you could threaten galactus with a tiny handheld device called the ultimate nullifier right which was you know was about as big as a derringer <laughs> you can threaten him with it. So Kirby was obviously hip to that irony. Uh, um, but generally, like the celestials and things like that, or the beings imprisoned in the Promethean galaxy, they are gigantic. And, and uh, 
you know, obviously that that just tends toward drawing the things that he drew very well and exploiting yeah. scale in the way that he knew how to exploit it. Um, and nobody uh, can like does that like. Correctly. Yeah, these days we're we're all too aware uh, that the miniature and the invisible has greater power than the grandest of our great big grand things. You know, yeah. um, we're all too aware of that, whether they're microbes or uh, uh, or microchips, we're aware of it. Yeah. Um, uh, Kirby usually dealt with big things, except in 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 a few instances I remember, um, and I love that about the work. And I think you're right that Mike Royer captured that particularly in in that grand kind of fourth world period. Where, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Where, um, and you had Kirby basically extending what had worked in Thor over at Marvel. Mm-hmm. Which was uh, high tech godhood, like high tech mythography. I mean, sometimes really, like Odin will look into some gizmo in a Thor comic, and you swear that it's just the same kind of gizmo that Reed Richards might have had on a page in Fantastic Four in the Baxter building. It looks completely high tech, you know. Um, As do the costumes, yeah. But it's part of Asgard, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and but but the, the fourth world was really running with that really running with that notion. I mean, uh, one of the signature features of superhero comics is uh, um, this reckless blurring of science and magic. Uh, that's something Richard Reynolds says in his book on superheroes that has always stuck with me. But Kirby is really kind of where that that impulse really crystallizes because he was just as comfortable doing a story with an occult feeling uh, and doing a story with a high tech feeling, uh, and and I was realizing when I was talking to Douglas Wolk about Victor Von Doom the other day that Doctor Doom is both. Yeah, absolutely. He's absolutely, absolutely both, right? And then there's that crazed period in Fantastic Four where they hire a witch, Agatha, to be the nanny. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like these are the most high tech people in a high tech world, and they've hired a witch to be their babysitter. It's like <laughs> Kirby was completely comfortable with this kind of stuff. Um, and going back and forth. And that's another thing those movies really have to rationalize. They have to work really hard. Like, why is an archer and a guy in an armored suit rubbing elbows with a god? Why is that happening? Comic book fans take that stuff for granted. And the reason we take it for granted is because of Kirby. That's why we take it for granted, I think. You know, that you can just do those things. You can be Robin Hood and the Green Hornet and, you know, um, uh, Hercules at the same time. You can do whatever. You know, absolutely. He he built it into the into the fabric of of the medium. And, uh, right. you know, it really comes down to him. Well, well, Charles, this has been amazing. Uh, I think, you know, this, I this, hope you get some useful things out of this. Oh, man, man, I, I've, no, this, this I've is enjoyed great. the conversation. I uh, have, too. Much. It's been it's been so enjoyable, so much fun to connect again after after so many years. And uh, and really, um, you know, I, I think we, you know, honest to God, if if I didn't have uh, other things to do wait, waiting for me, uh, I, this could go on um, all day because there's so much territory to cover and I, I hope we get a chance to do it again very soon it's been a real pleasure i've been back in a kirby state of mind lately thinking about you know uh new kirby projects um mm-hmm. um uh, uh new papers and and um a, a, a new um a collaborative book looming and oh, just wanting, wanting to be um um back in 
in that frame of mind, it's funny because we've concentrated so much on later Kirby in our conversation today, but I've spent a good part of the last week and a half or two uh, trying to relearn all that I can about Kirby between about 1935 and 1950. Well, that's uh, an interesting period. Yeah, both the Simon and Kirby stuff, but then again, all the random jobbing and journeyman work mm-hmm. that's happening um, uh, in animation and in comic strip work and eventually uh, in in comic books um, in the late 30s to early 40s. Um, and again, just retracing those all-told stories about how Joe Simon meets Kirby and all of that and thinking about the different accounts of that. Um, uh, and it's just fascinating to think about the young Kirby um, sort of earning his way uh, in that period. Um, Dearly want to do some more writing and research about that since my Hand of Fire book is definitely biased toward like the post mid 60s material. Um, And there's just a wealth of things um, uh, to cover. So it's been very um, pleasant um, putting my um, Kirby helmet back on and kind of (laughs) thinking in that sense. I'm glad we had the opportunity to do this and and hopefully we'll see some of what you're looking into now um very soon in some all right man thanks so very much uh uh, your podcast is a real pleasure i'm glad that i'll get to be among the voices on it so thanks thank thank you so much for for being with me charles it's been it's been great okay well that'll do it for this episode next time we have friend of the show the great brian walker of high and lois and beetle bailey here to talk to us about his latest project a new exhibition at the billy ireland cartoon library and museum at ohio state in columbus ohio the dog show two centuries of canine cartoons which is running from now until october 31st 2021 brian gives us the lowdown on what inspired the show and who's included So I know you're going to want to hear that. Hey, I wanted to tell you all about the latest comic I'm reading. It's called Pinko Joe. And Pinko Joe is on Instagram, at Pinko underscore Joe. Okay, at Pinko Joe. So it's two words with an underscore in the middle. His stuff is great. For those of you who are progressive in your politics, uh, don't have any great love for right-wing conservative media or Donald Trump, you will thoroughly enjoy Pinko Joe. Every day he posts something really, really great that both uh, makes me laugh out loud but also enrages me (laughs) for one reason or another. So check it out. There is no greater weapon uh, against tyranny than comedy and satire, and Pinko Joe has, has plenty of it. I'm reading his book, Pinko Joe. I've got both of his books, Pinko Joe and Greenie Josephine, and they are fantastic. Again, hilarious stuff, uh, wonderfully done, and you're going to love them. Uh, if, again, you have to be progressive in your politics, and uh, I think to appreciate what he's doing, but <laughs> because it's decidedly political. But it's great stuff. It's really funny, and it's really inventive. They are available from Argle Bargle Books. <laughs> Say that three times fast. Argle Bargle. Argle, bargle, 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 bargle. Anyway, Argle Bargle Books. It's just how it sounds. It's A R G L E Bargle. B A R G L E Books.com. You can uh, pick up uh, not only Pinko Joe stuff, but a variety of other things that are not necessarily political in the same vein. They may just be challenging as comics go. Uh, I highly recommend Pinko Joe and Argle Bargle books. <laughs> so uh, look for them quick. Um, 
And I, I got Jay Stevens Dwellings number two in the mail, uh, and that is fantastic. It is a beautiful, beautiful looking comic. Uh, you might want to try to pick that up from Black Eye Books, uh, BlackEyeBooks.com, I think it is. No, no, I'm sorry. It's it's BlackEye.ca. Uh, both Argle Bargle and uh, Black Eye are located in Canada. What do you know about that? Um, I don't know. What's going on in Canada? Good cartooning. That's all I know. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, Jay Stevens hits another home run in uh, Dwellings Number 2. So um, look for it wherever, wherever good comics are sold. I also just want to mention again Howie Noel at Dick Tracy Rogues Gallery. Uh, he's just kicking it with Dick Tracy stuff. Uh, look, I mean, just beautiful. Really, if you were a fan of Dick Tracy, you were just going to love his work. It's just so on the nose as far as Dick Tracy goes. And of course, uh, Teresa Henry and Hot Flashes and Hangovers. Uh, again, she's just doing wonderful, wonderful work. So, uh, hey, if you know of some great comics that I have yet to mention, point me in the direction of those, why don't you? Send me an email at jeffgcomics at gmail.com. That's G-E-O-F-F-G-Comics. Uh, G-E-O-F-F-G. It's not G-E-E, it's just the letter G, so it's Jeff G Comics, okay? G-E-O-F-F-G Comics at gmail.com. Uh, or you can send me a message on Instagram at greenscreencomic, okay? Uh, I'm always happy to come across new comics by new creators who I'm unfamiliar with and love to discover new stuff So uh, that I can share here on the show. So um, send some links along to me, okay? Again, that'll do it next time, Brian Walker. I will see you in a week or so. So until then, be safe. Take care of yourself. Enjoy the summer weather. I hope that it's amenable wherever you are. And uh, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.